0: We as human beings tend to interpret situations and conversations according to our biases. We all have them, whether they are gender biases or biases brought to us by experiences of life. We all tend to look at situations based on our perspective rather than sometimes the way it actually is. John called me the other night, he was at a car dealership buying a car. Uh, And he wanted me to come up and look at the car that he picked out. Immediately when I walked into the car dealership, a gentleman asked me, can I help you? I said, no, I'm here to rescue my son. (laughs) After I sat down and asked the young fellow a few questions, he said, well, I don't know. I've been working here for two weeks put my head down, and he put his head down, and he went wisely to go get somebody with more experience, because he couldn't answer the questions I was asking. The, f- the fellow finally did ask the questions, and sufficiently so, and so I left, and the car dealer looked at John and said, "Has your father ever had a bad experience with a car salesman?" And I thought, "Well, who hasn't had one?" I'll never forget the time that Karen and I were surrounded by five or six car salesmen. And uh, in the midst of it, Karen said, you're lying. All of you are lying. <laughs> and I, I thought, don't say that. And all of a sudden, it occurred to me, she's right. They were lying. The stories were changing. And But we all tend to do that, don't we? We, we listen to a conversation, we see a situation, and we tend to interpret it according to our biases the uh, next picture I want to show you I want you to react to all the men in the congregation are thinking that poor sap I bet he wished he picked better all the women in the congregation are thinking that idiot probably just said something stupid to me to her And deserves everything he's getting. Do you see how we interpret it according, in that case, to our gender bias bias or prejudice? When we come along to the conversations that Jesus has with the Pharisees, scribes, and religious leaders, we're going to have a number of them in the Gospel of John. We come to the end of another one where he says some very harsh things. We tend to interpret that according to our bias of the nature within us, or at least not the nature because we have the divine nature, but sin within us. We, we say to Jesus, yeah, go get them. You know, break their necks. Tell them the truth. Grind them in the dust because it looks like that's what he's doing. Uh, it's like the scene that I saw going down Rick Road a few days ago on my way home. Uh, There was a pit bull on top of one of those ugly ducks. The duck was desperately trying to get away. I thought, oh boy, your days are done. A few minutes, your neck will be snapped and probably be severed from your body. That's what we think about the conversation of Jesus with these Jews, these religious leaders. Like a pit bull on top of an ugly duck. Rip their heads off. Tell them the truth. Put them in their place. Grate them in the dust. Jesus has no intent or desire to do that in what he's sharing. In John 1, 11, it says, He came unto his own. Stop right there. He came to a rebellious Jewish leadership who he knew would reject him. But he came with compassion and love and a desire to reach them. Will he say hard things to them? Yes, he will. But in doing so, he shows the greatest amount of love and compassion. He came to his own. His own didn't receive him. Aren't you thankful that he came to you and I in our rebellion? Aren't you grateful that he didn't wasn't thrown off by our first rejection of him. And that he kept coming and kept coming. Aren't you grateful that he said some hard things to you? Aren't you grateful that some Christian said some hard things to you? Because they loved you? So I don't want you to interpret all these diatribes of Jesus, all these conversations with the Jews... As if it was a pit bull on an ugly duck. It's not that at all. Because he is going to call them hypocrites. He's going to call them whitewashed sepulchres. <laughs> That's fascinating. That's he's gonna nail them to the and and, and you know, in that stuff in us we go, yeah, 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 yeah. It's not that at all. Go to John, if you would, chapter five, verse forty-one. Let's see the end of this discussion, and let's put our thinking caps on. I'll be honest with you, I've never understood this part of the the address. I think I have a little bit of a grasp on it now. Look at verse 41. He says to them, I do not receive glory from people. I do not need your applause. I don't want your applause. I'm not here to win an argument with you. I don't want to, because he could have. I mean, think of God arguing with man. He could tie them up in knots and spit them out. But I don't, need, I don't want that. My goal is not to win an argument. My goal is not to twist you into the dust. My goal is not to get glory from you. I don't need that. So this whole engagement is not about you applauding me because you can win a debate and lose the argument he could have done that there what he was after was not an intellectual assent to who he was he was after their heart he was after their life he wanted them to come to him not because he won an argument because he won their hearts i do not need glory for i don't receive glory from people verse 42 But I know, the old King James says, but I know you, I know that you do not have the love of God within you. You want to get somebody's attention? You want to get some religious leader's attention? You want to get some high-profile rabbi's attention? Whose whole job is, is the address toward God and loving God with all their heart, mind, and soul. You want to get their attention? Look them straight in the eye and says, You do not have the love of God inside of you. David Alsberger wrote years ago a book called Caring Enough to Confront. This is the epitome of that. Now, who has the love of God in them naturally? No man. None of us do. No man naturally from birth has any love or interest in God at all. Now, there are theologians that will tell you differently. They'll tell you there's a little spark of interest in, in in a child when they're coming up. There's a little spark of interest in God. And yes, they're more open and innocent toward God. And you can... Lead them into the truth, but there's nothing naturally in the heart of man that has any interest in God. All we like sheep have gone astray, everyone to his own path. There's nothing in us that seeks God. God had to seek first. So he's not telling these people anything that's not true of us. But it bites with them and it stings with them because that's their job to love God. He says, look, I, I know that you have no love and by the way, when Jesus says, I know you, he knows you. Oh, he, I don't know you. and You don't know me to the very core. We know things about each other, and, but he knows you. Uh, let, that, let that sink in. But I know you that you do not have the love of God within you. Notice, I have come in my Father's name you don't receive me. If, if somebody else comes in their own name, those are the people that you'll receive. Now think about it. Think about it. Jesus says, I'm, not coming in my, I'm coming in my Father's name. I'm coming not self-seeking. There's nothing about the self in me that wants applause or glory. I'm seeking His will and His plan, and I'm coming in His name, not mine. Do you you see how humanity doesn't get that? We get it when somebody wants glory for themselves. Why? Because we want glory for ourselves. Our whole basis is self. And so whenever somebody comes in self, we go, I get that. I understand that. I applaud that. It's part of human nature. But when one comes who absolutely doesn't care about your opinion of them, They're not seeking your glory. They're seeking the glory of God. That spins us, and we don't get it. We'll follow a guy that's all about himself, promoting self, because that's what we attach ourselves to. I heard on the radio last week a segment that a radio station's working out, the good news of the day, the good news of the day, the good news of the day. And I thought that's wonderful, the good news of the day. The problem is it doesn't interest anybody. And we like to hear when somebody's being good, but we really like to hear when somebody's being bad. Bad news sells, good news doesn't, because that's human nature. You can't escape it. You know, you're in traffic that's backed up because of a wreck, right? And it's really slow because of the rubberneckers, and we think, quit looking and drive, and what do you do when you get on the site? <laughs> you slow right down with them. You want to see what happened. So the way we are when Jesus came along. We didn't get it because he's so otherworldly. We'll follow after messiahs who tell us what they want. We follow after messiahs that stroke the self-life. But those who talk about the end of self and the beginning of him and all the Father's glory. and In my mind, I thought last week, how are we slaves to the opinions and glory of other people? I mean, we'll say things like, I don't care what they think. That's not true. Let them tell you what they think, and it will bother you, even if you don't like them. Well, their opinion means nothing to me. What did they say? I've got a quote from J.R. Tolkien, who is the author, the author of The Lord of the Rings. The great J.R. Tolkien, who wrote an amazing book about um, a story that really tells the gospel. He said this, Some who have read the book, Lord of the Rings, or at any rate have reviewed it, have found it boring, absurd, and contemptible, and have no cause, and I have no cause to complain. Well, why not, J.R.? Look, since I have similar opinions of their works and of the kinds of writings that they evidently prefer. Do <laughs> you think that bothered J.R.? Oh, it don't bother me. I don't like their stuff either. Isn't that the way we are? Jesus says, you don't get me because I'm not like anybody who's ever led you. Because this is not about, this is about the Father. Notice in verse 43. I have come in my Father's, you don't receive me. If another comes in his own name, you love that. How can you believe when when you receive glory from one another? And you and do not seek the glory that comes only from God. It's impossible to get beyond that hurdle. We'll see why at the end. I don't want to jump the jump the gate. Look at verse forty-five. Don't think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuses you. <laughs> I'd love to have been there. I would have loved to see their eyes. Do you, enti- do you understand their entire life was Moses' writings? Moses was the guy. I mean, they studied the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. This was their life. They love Moses. Notice, who's going to accuse these guys? Moses. If they weren't listening, they're listening now. Moses, notice, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. Now, the next thing I'm, I'm, I'm just going to show you up on the screen has, has little to do with the moment of the sermon, but I put it in there for you cats who came out of the 70s. If it weren't in the '70s, this whole thing won't mean anything to you. Uh, it's just about the beauty of Jesus Christ and how they missed him. It's an old Don McLean song uh, written about a man named Vincent, Vincent Van Gogh. I've changed the words. I, I hesitate whether I'm going to sing it to you. Saying it, thank you for the encouragement. For they could not love you, but still your love was true. And when no hope was left for man on that dark and stormy day, you gave your life as substitute for mine. But I could have told you, Jesus, this world was never meant for one as beautiful as you. Now, if you were living in the 70s, that meant nothing to you, but I hope you enjoyed it if you came out of that. Word changed around. He was so beautiful, they didn't see it. Now, Jesus said, Moses wrote of me. Let's, let's take a look at it. This is what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. Get this. Because if they'd have believed Moses, they'd have believed Jesus. Because remember, there's a, there's a paralyzed man who's dancing a jig, eating a camel rider over there on the side of the temple. And they can look at him. They can look at him. They can see it. You don't raise a man for 38 years and deny that. Caleb, grab a hold of yourself here. (laughs) Deuteronomy 18, 15. The Lord your God, Moses says, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your brethren, your brothers. Don't miss that. A prophet will be like Moses. He will be a man like Moses. Why? Notice, it is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said as a people, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. God came down on the mountain, he got close to the people, they felt the heat in their face, they felt the glory, they were overwhelmed, and they said properly, get away from us. In fact, God says, and the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken, because my presence is too much for humanity. It's overwhelming, the glory of God will wipe us all clean. Therefore, God will send a man among us. Notice what it says. They are right. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth. And he, the servant, the prophet, shall speak to them all that I, God, command him. You see that? There's the promise. God will send a man among them to speak the very words of God himself. Jesus Christ, and notice the rest of the verse, verse 19, and whosoever, whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Wow. There it is. Go on, exegete that passage, you Jews, and then have the man stand right in front of you and you don't, you don't believe Moses, you don't believe me. Wow, you don't think they knew that passage? You know, you can know the Bible and not know the author of the Bible. You can pick it apart know it and run circles around theologians and you haven't got a clue of the life that it provides. The Bible is never meant to be an end in itself. It's meant to get us in the life of Jesus and keep us there. So what do we give account to in the end of days? Notice it's the Word of God itself. It is something concrete that you can Read. Look at the last verse, then we're done. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Tough stuff, isn't it? Tough stuff. I'll give you two things. I figure since it's daylight savings time and we're behind anyway, we'd catch up with one of the principles being gone. Make you feel better? Well, you always do three things, or you're going to get two things today. Okay? Number one, idolatry, and I'd be careful how I chose the wording of this. Idolatry is not what keeps us away from God, idolatry is what people choose to keep themselves away from God. So I thought I'd bring a picture of idolatry in there. This is the idolatry of humanity. This is our idolatry. Uh, And I I brought a picture of it. Would you like to see a picture framed out of idolatry? Some of you might be surprised. Would you like that? Okay, I brought a picture actually this morning. And I'd like to show it to you. What idolatry actually looks like in a frame. You guys ready? i be ready for this. You can't see it? Well, here it is. I want you to see. See how vain we are? We want to see ourselves in that. <laughs> Proves my point, isn't it? You know why they didn't have the love of God in them? Because they had a love of self. You see, God goes on the throne and I go off. I love his ethical teachings. But don't come with me about being born again of the Spirit of God because I love me. I love self. And it is the number one sin. And it, by the way, it's the sin that God hated in the Old Testament more than any. The reason the children of Israel went off into captivity to the Babylonians is because of idolatry. And after 70 years in captivity, that cured them of idolatry. Never did they do that again. God hates anything to be in His place, and we are all in His place. All of us. Well, that's a hard truth. Well, that's what Jesus said. The love of God is not in you. You can't be void. There has to be a love for something, and it's not the stuff you have. It's you. It's the stuff you have that makes me feel good, that I want. Idolatry creeps into the gospel when I say it has to do certain things for me. It has to make me happy, wealthy, healthy, and wise. It has to do all the things that I want it to do. Christianity has become a self-serving, self-centered religion. Jesus said you have not the love of God in you. How can you believe? How can you follow somebody? Imagining living living life whose only opinion you care about is God Almighty. And where you follow him and follow him and follow him, and you could care less what happens to you. Imagine the freedom of that. Number two, and I'm done. The kindest thing you can ever do is tell somebody the truth. In love, the kindest thing you can do is to tell somebody the truth. Solomon said, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Lorelai came to me last week. She said, "Pop, I don't like what we're watching. I want to watch something else." Well, I know what she wanted to watch, some of those kids shows, you know. So I said to her, I said, "You are in Pop's house. That's Pop's TV. I'm going to watch what I want to watch. You just go off and play." I'm a mean grandpa. Karen said, "Why do you have to be so mean?" You're just mean to them. you're mean, you're just mean, you've got a mean spirit with them. I'm not being mean, but I know that the heart of every little child is a self-centered, self-seeking, they're the center of their world, and I'm helping Lorelai understand that she is not the center of the world, and that helps her greatly. She said, I want to sleep with Kiki. I said, you're not going to sleep with Kiki because you don't sleep good, go in and get me your bed. So the next morning she woke up and she said this, Papa, do you love me? That's called manipulation. <laughs> it's naturally born in the heart of every woman. I mean, every woman and man. <laughs> it slipped. It was a farting it slipped. It was a farting it slipped. She said, do you love me? I said, yeah, I love you. Well, I want to sleep with Kiki. I said, it's not good for you to sleep with Kiki. Hans Christian Andersen in 1837... Hans Christian Andersen in 1830, some of you aren't going to recover from that. You're just not going to do that. Yeah, I can't get you back. Hans Christian Andersen in 1837 wrote a short tale entitled The Emperor's New Clothes. By the way, those of you also who are older should be reading these stories to our kids and grandkids. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Most of you know the story, but for those of you who don't, I'll begin and then tell the story a little bit and tell the ending. It's telling. It was rewritten by Jean Hersholt. This is not exactly how Anderson wrote the story, but it is the story. Many years ago, there was an emperor so exceedingly fond of new clothes that he spent all of his money on being well-dressed. He cared nothing about reviewing his soldiers, going to the theater, or going on a ride in his carriage except to show off his new clothes. He had a coat for every hour of the day. And instead of saying as one might about any other ruler, the king is in council. Here they always said, the king is in the dressing room. So along came in this great city where life was always happy. One day two strangers showed up and they were swindlers. And they told the king they were going to make him a new set of clothes with invisible thread. And as they began to sew those clothes together and brought them to him, This is what they told the king. Only people that are smart can see the clothes. Only those people who are of station and position and intelligent can see these clothes. And so the day they brought the clothes, they began to put them on. But you who know the story know that there was nothing at all that they were putting on the king. And as he went on parade naked through the streets... Let me read to you the, the end of the story. You know, it kind of ends differently than I thought. The swindlers at once asked for more money, more silk and gold thread, and went on the weaving. But it all went into their pockets, not a thread went into the looms. The, the emperor presently sent another trustworthy official to see how the work progressed. And it progressed rapidly. Rapidly. Towards the end of the story, it says that then the minister of public processions announced your majesty's canopy is waiting outside. Well, I'm I'm supposed to be ready, the emperor said, and again turned for one last look in the mirror. It's a remarkable fit, isn't it? He seemed to regard his costume with the greatest interest. So off went the emperor in procession under his splendid canopy. Everyone in the streets and the window said oh how fine the emperor's new clothes fit they fit him to procession no costume the emperor has ever wore before has such great success but then a little child in the crowd said this but he hasn't got anything on did you ever hear such innocent prattle said his father But then the one person whispered to another what the child had said. He hasn't got anything on. A child says he hasn't got anything on. We get to the end of the story. But he hasn't got anything on. The whole town cried. Now listen how the story ends. The emperor shivered, for he suspected that they were right. But he thought this procession has got to move on. So he walked more proudly than ever as his nobleman held high the train that wasn't there at all.